You're listening to Work Tape, episode 86. Welcome to another edition of the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Lane Mitchell. We got Isaac Ruben Grover as well, per usual. We're going to continue our series talking about some prolific producers that shaped the industry and production landscape as we know it. And you really can't talk about impactful music producers and kind of a Mount Rushmore of music producers without mentioning one particular name, and that is Quincy Jones. And the really cool thing about Quincy Jones that sets him apart from many producers is Number one, just the wide range of genres and styles that he covered from playing trumpet and being in the circle with Ray Charles to, of course, his composition work, not only for major films, but also playing with Frank Sinatra as well and being his music director and band leader of sorts. And then, of course, what really really cemented Quincy as a household name amongst many folks is, of course, his incredible run with Michael Jackson and just creating, in my opinion, three of not just the best pop albums, but just three of the best albums of all time, which is, of course, Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad. And then not to mention also as well that Quincy has actually remained relatively active. I mean, he had to take a little bit of a break just because of, I believe, some issues that he had with his hearing. I think I remember reading correct that he started losing hearing on like one side or one ear, which kind of makes sense. I mean, the dude is like in his 90s almost, I think, at this point. So the fact that he is still alive actually and still has you know somewhat of an active role in music and has for pretty much almost a century is pretty crazy and i think we had mentioned before in previous episodes that he seems to be much better than a lot of producers at kind of like not necessarily reinventing himself but kind of capitalizing on the trends and kind of capitalizing on what's popular, but still keeping a lot of integrity in his sound. He produced more than, of course, just, you know, Michael. Of course, I mean, Quincy has a ton of his own records as well that kind of lean more into actually the jazz space. Um, And of course, he produced for James Ingram and George Benson. And of course, um, Rod Temperton, of course, was also on a lot of those Quincy records. And you could really tell, at least for my favorite period of Quincy music, is definitely the 70s and the 80s, especially with um, a lot of those R&B cuts that he did, and of course, the MJ records. And you could really tell that it is a Quincy production because everything is very smooth. There's definitely a clarity to the way that he mixed even in the 70s, before a lot of music went you know, digital, there was more clarity and more sheen to the way that he would do production, even in 
the 70s and then not to mention like the musicality too kind of in the same way that like steely dan was able to incorporate jazz and make it popular i mean many people said that like steely dan was basically a jazz band that kind of not pretended but kind of they were really a jazz band that just happened to be popular i guess is kind of what people were saying in regards to steely dan and i think that that's very true and that sentiment also is echoed with quincy as well in the sense that he has always been kind of a jazz and composition guy, but he was able to incorporate a lot of those elements into pop records. And I mean, you can hear it just with, you know, the opening track of Off the Wall, uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Yep. And the thing that you can really tell with Quincy is the strings. Like the fact that after the intro from Mike, it jumps right into the strings. and. You know, that's very reminiscent of the compositions that Quincy did for, you know, something like The Wiz, you know, which in a big way is really responsible for that whole MJ and Quincy collaboration because, you know, they were working on the film together and, you know, one thing kind of led to another. And I think that his style is something that's often imitated, but not really like completely duplicated. I mean, God knows how many people have tried to sound like that period of MJ, especially with Thriller and Off the Wall, more Thriller and Off the Wall. I would say people don't really try to imitate a lot of the stuff off of Bad as much. And I feel like with those records, it's really Off the Wall and Thriller that people try to replicate, especially with somebody like The Weeknd. The Weeknd, funny enough, actually got Quincy Jones on his recent album as well. So there you go. You know, in terms of just the relevancy and whatnot, you know, he's popping up on, you know, the weekend's records too. He's on Don FM. He has a little uh, interlude basically before going into At a Time on that weekend album, which actually sounds like a thriller cut. And I think overall, just for someone like myself, who is a producer and artist and cares a lot about just the production of music. I think that there's just really a lot that you can learn from listening to albums and music that he has worked on. You learn a lot about, you know, structure, musicality of a song, chords, and production too, in terms of, you know, having something sound just as good on speakers that cost $10,000 or speakers that cost $10. Um, and then that's the thing that Thriller amongst a couple other albums, most notably, like I think Thriller, Random Access Memories, which also kind of sounds a bit like Quincy Jones and a couple other albums, they all sound good no matter what you're playing it on. Um, whether it's, you know, like phone speakers, a cheap Bluetooth speaker, Apple earbuds, or if you have, you know, a dedicated hi-fi system, like it, it sounds good across the entire range. And that's the one thing that I think I take away from Quincy a lot as well is just consistency in regards to mixing and mastering, because 
I feel like that's something that's been kind of lost a little bit in some modern releases. I mean, there are modern releases that are starting to get that back a little bit in regards to that attention to detail within mixing and and whatnot. But there was but a, it's, but it's a, not as across the board as it used to be, for sure. Oh no. Not the way that it was from the seventies through the nineties. I would say it was really you know, like really important. And I feel like it was really consistent, even with albums and genres that were kind of not the highest fidelity. They still came in at really high fidelity. I mean, I think we had talked in various episodes about how like even some of the grunge records of the 90s still sounded like really crisp, despite the fact that that genre was like not exactly the most intricate at times oh right there are so many well-polished i mean 10 and never mind yeah are two of the most overproduced and you know never mind's my third favorite record of all time so i'm not bashing on it but yeah it is definitely one of those quote-unquote overproduced records as well as 10 yeah and then there are other albums from uh that actually weezer's blue is a little bit the same it's kind of it's pretty indie sounding. It doesn't sound super high production compared to its counterparts or it's, you know, something of a contemporary. Yeah, but I feel like even that one had a bit of clarity to it still. No, it had clarity. It's one of my favorite. Uh, well, it's one of my favorite records, but it's also one of my favorite like sounds to a record, like the actual uh, what's the word? The actual sound profile. Sure. Like the sonic signature. Yeah, the Sonic Signature is one of my favorites, but I also kind of favor it because it's not as overproduced in sound like Nevermind or 10. Well, I, I don't even think that one is as overproduced as some of Weezer's later records even, too. Oh, like Pinkerton and whatnot? Yeah, when they, well, actually, uh, Pinkerton, I think, is a bit underrated, I think, overall. Oh, it's definitely over- underrated, yes. No, I was talking more about, like, the Green Album, or like the Beverly Hills era. Oh my goodness. No, though I mean, to be fair, it was a new decade. And with that new decade, things sounded well, yeah, they were still trying to mimic Nevermind. There are a ton of records that were inspired by Nevermind's sound profile. Yeah. Andy Wallace and Butch Vig. I mean, they knocked that out of the park. Like everyone for like the next 20 years were like chasing that sound. But yeah, Weezer never really Weezer actually did. I don't know who their engineers were all of the time, but they definitely did try to never mind the records. But I still think Blue Album is one of their best sonically because it's more uh, humble. It's not the most humble, but it's pretty humble when you listen to it. Yeah, especially for, I would say, that time where there was definitely more of an emphasis to, as as you kind of stated, to like overproduce or to kind of go you know, really, really crisp, especially with it being the early 90s, especially with digital recording being more of a thing, especially with Pro Tools starting to be used as well in that period of time. So there was just a real emphasis to like really use the technology, I guess. I guess kind of going on the off of the topic of overproduced versus produced, I think that's the big thing of why the Quincy records are so great. There's a lot of intricacy, but I don't think it's overproduced. I don't think I would ever call something like Off the Wall or Thriller or even Bad 
I wouldn't call those overproduced. I actually wouldn't either. And I think a lot of it has to do with Quincy's ear. Um, this is not to diss on Andy Wallace or Butch Vig because when I say overproduced, this is mostly a term that plagues the rock industry. Mm-hmm. When it comes to something that's more pop or R&B focused, I don't really hear that term used as much. So I think it's natural that we wouldn't hear Quincy's name among something that was overproduced. Yeah. But to your point, Quincy's ear for arrangement and his sound profile, it's a good marriage. I mean, it's a great marriage. It's one of the most iconic marriages in all of music history. And there's a reason why we like it. I was even thinking when you mentioned about his film and movie scoring. Yeah. Quincy's a madman of a genius. And he's hyper-focused. He's totally a perfectionist. One of the most perfectionist of producers I've ever heard. Oh, yeah. He's meticulous, like where he puts his, you know, the trumpet section, the, the string section. With Hans Zimmer being from the Buggles, both Zimmer and Jones, they have an ear for film and maybe even Broadway-esque type stuff. But mostly Quincy has more, not like necessarily Broadway, but that upbeat type musical type sound. Right. Something that would fit in, you know, a high energy movie. And yes, yeah, you hear that all over. I mean, many of his records. And I think that is what sets him apart from others. Zimmer is a little bit more subtle in his composition for film and stuff like that. And it's worked well for him. Right. But it's interesting to kind of compare both composers work in the music industry in comparison to their film and scoring work. Right. And I think the thing with Zimmer, of course, is that, you know, basically he got the start with the Buggles. He's done a little bit of some stuff in regards to pop music, but he really, really leaned and got more of his claim to fame in being kind of the go-to modern film producer. Like anytime that like, a film now is exceeding a certain budget and has a certain kind of profile, you're just going to call Hans Zimmer for it. (laughs) Like it's basically at that point where it's like, if it crosses a threshold of like millions or if it gets even into hundreds of millions of dollars, you're most likely going to call Hans Zimmer because the man has a bit of a formula. I can tell that just at least with, Zimmer, Zimmer especially, I feel like, has more of a formula now. He didn't always, but I think kind of at the turn of the decade, specifically the early 2000s, of course, leading into now, he kind of has a bit of a formula with like deep bass, kind of the inception horn that he created that was, of course, used by like every film after Inception came out. <laughs> Inception was like that one film. <laughs> well, and the funny thing was, is like it wasn't even really the film; it was the freaking score. That's what I'm saying. I'm talking about like if we're gonna talk about like a score from a film, Inception was like that one. Which I won't lie, like it did touch me emotionally, but still, it was so it was overrated. I won't lie, it, it was. Well, yeah, and the funny thing was, it wasn't even like the score from the actual movie. It wasn't like titanic in the sense that like the song from the actual film got really big you know with my heart will go on or whatever no with inception it was the trailer it was the music that was in the trailer 
and specifically that really deep horn sound that almost kind of sounded a bit like an 808, like a sub bass 808, which I guess is pretty innovative, I guess, because I didn't really hear too much of like the idea of a horn sounding like an 808 or a sub bass until I heard that. But pretty much that was just something that like everybody jumped on after that. And it was like every trailer that was trying past that point that was trying to evoke like the same mood, like just use that. I don't know, maybe that even crossed over a little bit into some popular music too, in the respect of kind of how like hip hop got a little bit more grandiose in like their sound. And they would have not exactly that same horn sound, but they would use the actual 808s. But I mean, you would listen to something from Kanye or from Travis Scott, and they would kind of have a similar type of sound and kind of just the singular really deep bass notes that kind of evoke i don't know that feeling but kind of going back to what you were saying about quincy's kind of ear for film and you know musical background i mean that is a major reason why i think he was chosen for the whiz you know because they were like you know we need somebody who is going to be able to capture that feel who's going to give us that kind of cinematic sound but that of course is also going to be fitting for you know a predominantly black you know movie as well and i think that's why the whiz is really important not just of course for the kind of pairing that it created of mj and quincy which i do think that that's still the biggest takeaway because i think without that meeting i think it would have been very like not unlikely but i think it would have been definitely less likely that mj and quincy would have paired up if it wasn't for them working on that film together i mean with mj he probably could have found ways to seek out quincy even if they weren't doing the film but let's be honest like it did make it convenient but it's just one of those things where it's just the ear and as I kind of said before, I mean, there's just so much you can do from a musicality standpoint. I'm just going to say it. Want to be starting something is like, to me, it is a paramount of Quincy's production. Oh, yeah. Because, no, you know, people don't talk about that one as much as, you know, Billie Jean and whatnot. Yeah. And that's the thing that kind of is somewhat upsetting to me. I mean, not like uber upsetting because it's not like people don't talk about off the wall but i feel like because thriller was so big and did so well and of course you know was like the highest selling album of all time by an artist i felt like because of how successful and how game-changing thriller was people don't really give the flowers to off the wall as much especially because it did kind of come at the end of an era. I mean, we, I think we had said, Oh, you're right. It became kind of an edgy move to prefer off the wall over thriller. Yeah. And we said that, I think in a previous episode that, you know, off the wall kind of was like the last true great disco record before that big kind of shift happened. And yeah, I do think that at least in music circles, it's somewhat perceived as a little bit of a hot take if you take Off the Wall over Thriller. Not just amongst like MJ fans, but amongst music 
listeners and fans in general, if you say that you think that off the wall is superior, there are some people that kind of look at you interestingly. Like, are you off the wall? <laughs> yeah. But I think that off the wall is a really, really solid record. I don't think it's perfect. I think that in terms of like the true quintessential, like perfect record, I would say that Thriller fits that bill a little bit more. Oh, you mean it's consistency? Yeah, like the sequencing. Thriller has one of the best, um, what is it, like playlists for, or at least as you said, like the order of the songs. Yeah, like the track listing. Yeah, I mean, the beginning is amazing. The ending is appropriate. It really is. It's pretty good in its uh, sequencing. And I think you're right. It's definitely better than Off the Wall in that respect. But I mean, Off the Wall is a fantastic record. It's just as good as anything from Chic or Average White Band, Cool in the Gang, Sly and Stone, or uh, what, who's the other one? Earth, Wind and Fire. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, I would say actually the only one of the list that you just said that would be even close to probably off the wall would be earth, wind and fire. Just because if you're talking about the same or a similar like musicality, as well as kind of a mainstream appeal. Ah, you're right. You're right. One of the only ones that really kind of blended the two together as well as off the wall did was of course, earth, wind and fire. But the thing with earth, wind, oh, and but fire, I'm still going to vouch for cool and chic. Those two. Well, of course. For sure are some of the most like. Oh, definitely. Dude. Yeah. No question about it. I mean, we had discussed in the Nile Rogers episode how impactful that Chic record was and how basically hip hop almost would have probably not really been made if it wasn't for that Chic record. I'm just saying that handful of bands are the kings of like the disco era and off the wall fits within that. I mean, Michael. Very much so. I mean, Michael was able to do the Motown sound and then the disco sound. And then he, in a way, kind of created a new genre, so to speak, yeah. a thriller. Yeah. And then, of course, if you want to talk about the queen of disco, it would be like Donna Summer, too. Yeah. Donna so, Summer. Yeah. And then, of course, we got to talk about also Giorgio Moroder, too, if you're talking for production on disco. Giorgio was somebody who was kind of. Giorgio is interesting because I don't think Giorgio, um, well, Giorgio definitely didn't get as much like actual acclaim and flowers as Quincy, but especially in regards to using the synthesizer in music production, I would say it's, it's Giorgio for sure. Right. And finally, he got a little bit of some of the recognition off that Daft Punk record because, you know, you had that Giorgio by Marauder track or whatever. And it kind of just showed you how prolific his synthesizers was. But that's a whole nother episode, just from the Donna Summer stuff to the French House, Daft Punk stuff, because he's covered a wide range, too. But definitely with, yeah, I would say all those groups. I mean, like I said, She, Cool in the Game, Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, the Isleys, too. The Isleys, yep. I mean, the Isleys didn't have as much of the disco thing, as much of like the dance floor sound as kind of those other groups that we mentioned. I mean, not to say that they didn't have great club hits, I guess, at that time. They did, of course. They had music that was going to make you move. 
but they didn't emphasize that as part of their sound as much, at least the Isleys. The Isleys, to me, always kind of seem a little bit more laid back and a little bit more leaning into the soul a little bit more, which I love them for. I love all those. And I'm still vouching for Family Stone, but, you know. Oh, Family Stone, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Sly and the Family Stone, especially with Larry Graham, man. Oh, yep, Larry Graham. Yeah, Sly was great, too, of course, from his songwriting and whatnot. But, I mean, really, the big takeaway of Sly and the Family Stone was definitely Larry Graham. The fact that nobody was really playing slap bass before Larry did it. No, no, they weren't. I mean, his thumb technique, everything about it's It's so cool to watch Graham play bass. I mean, just hear his technique. Yeah. And it's Drake's uncle, everybody. So there oh, you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it is Drake's uncle. And there's a lot of people who thought, oh, nepotism at its finest. Because <laughs> your uncle is Larry freaking Graham. So like, yeah. Oh, music. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, you can do music. But I mean, obviously, way, way different. I mean, I guess in a way, it's cool with both of them because they have left pretty significant impacts on music in just vastly different ways. And, you know, a lot of people said that, you know, Drake kind of essentially created a bit of a different sound as well, which I do give him credit for that kind of blend of like hip hop and R&B and especially that kind of moodiness, that kind of melancholic stuff. Um, I would say that that was definitely something that he really brought to the forefront. I mean, I don't think that Drake actually created that. I think it was more of something that he just popularized as opposed to like Larry Graham, who I think undoubtedly created slap bass. Because with the Drake thing, you can kind of trace that moody R&B rap combo to Kanye. Um, with like 808s and Heartbreak. I mean, I don't think Drake would have been Drake without 808s and Heartbreak, to be really honest. No. But once again, it all ties back to Kanye in some way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the thing. And, and, that's, and that's the thing. And, and actually, even with Quincy, there's a tie to Kanye too, which is uh, Kanye sampled PYT, that song Good Life Off of Graduation, has samples from PYT, those little vocal chops. Da, 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 da. That whole thing. I can't think of one artist. Actually, sometimes Michael, I think, is also kind of like Kanye, where people take them both seriously and then make fun of them. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm not condoning bullying, by the way. I'm just making an observation. Right. Right. If you reach a certain status and like a certain pinnacle or a certain profile, you're going to get people parodying you. And you want to talk about MJ, you know, Weird Al parodied MJ at the height of his career. And it got to a point where actually, if you got parodied by Weird Al, that was kind of a sign that like you made it or that you were actually doing something right in a big way, or at least that you were popular. Right. Because Weird Al decided to parody you. So it was almost kind of like a, a rite of passage. But yeah, so in the vein of Kanye sampling Quincy Jones, Dr. Dre has also sampled Quincy Jones on numerous occasions, um, specifically for, I believe, some Tupac records, as well as the Death Row era of Dr. Dre. You actually hear some Quincy samples like all over that as well. So that's definitely another connection as well, which brings me into 
the topic for that next episode is that we got to talk about Dre. And we have to talk specifically about uh, Dr. Dre's contributions, not only to just 90s hip hop, but more of his contributions as well to kind of modern music as we know it, especially with him being responsible for giving us Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, 50 Cent, Anderson Pack, truly some of like the biggest artists in our modern music landscape were put on by Dre. And I feel like that aspect of his career is just as important as his actual production, which his production is amazing as well. Not to say his production is not great. His production is fantastic. But I feel like what Dre did in terms of giving all of these people essentially careers and bringing them to a level that they needed to go to, that's kind of one of the big things. And of course, Dre with Beats by Dre as well, that business and music intersection. So we definitely got to talk about Dre on the next episode, um, <laughs> which, yeah, stay tuned for the next episode. Stay tuned. Uh, drink plenty of water and um, yeah, peace out. Peace out. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Brick Tape Podcast.